I've been talking to that good-looking reporter over there. He just got back from Russia. He told me a couple of very interesting things. It snows there in the summertime, and they don't have very many attractive women. Do you realize what that means? When we go to Russia, I will have my pick of any man in the country, and you can make a snowman in June. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Be a funny daddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Now today, I don't think I could say with a straight face we're talking about a trope. We have a very interesting topic that I in particular wanted to cover because of my connection to at least one of the shows we're talking about. Amy, what's our topic today? So our topic is the Cold War. And as it turns out, our trope is racist stereotypes of different countries involved in communism. Well, yeah, somewhat incidentally, we do have some very regrettable things in some of these episodes. We'll explain that when we get to it. But what we're talking about today is TV episodes that deal with uh, the relationship between the United States and Russia during the 60s, 80s, 90s. Since the end of World War II, right. the Cold War era, which ostensibly went away in the early 90s, mid 90s, but um, we saw a lot of parallels in these episodes to some of the things we are going through today. Yeah. Look, I don't think anyone is coming to the sitcom study for a history lesson. Basically, all you need to know about the Cold War is that there was a lot of stuff out there, the James Bond craze, just anything to do with spies and the sort of looming threat of nuclear catastrophe. And all of that stuff goes back to this very uneasy relationship that existed between these two nuclear superpowers throughout all the, the years that we were growing up. But what we're really talking about is... This two or three part arc in head of the class where they all went to Russia. It was basically one of my favorite feature films as a kid. Uh, these three episodes of head of the class that we had taped off of TV. I loved watched it over and over again, you know, for, for reasons that I now looking back on it, I see the reasons why I did like it so much, I think, despite the fact that I had very little understanding of the context. And so we found a handful of other shows that deal with the Cold War or the relationship with Russia in some way. And we've made ourselves a lineup. That's right. Uh, so what's the lineup? So our lineup, we're going to start with our trigger warning episode of Mr. Ed, Season 6, Episode 3, Cold Finger. Moving way forward in time to The Golden Girls, Season 3, Episode 6, Letter to Mr. Gorbachev. Then Head of the Class, Season 3, Episode 4, Mission to Moscow. And rounding it all out with Boy Meets World, Season 3, Episode 19, I Was a Teenage Spy. So, Amy, the Cold War, 
whose side were you on? Were you in favor of the Berlin Wall coming down? What what was your experience? <laughs> well, I guess I have to out myself here and now. Uh, I am a Russian spy. The Americans was based on your life, right? The I think similarly to your experience with Head of the Class, that time, like our Golden Girls episode and our Head of the Class episode sort of take place in that same year where we had Reagan's speech where he was like, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then another year or so went by and then the wall did come down. But I remember my Girl Scout troop in, I think it was like 1989, it was shortly after the wall came down, we were doing some, it was like some, you know, like United Nations of Girl Scout troops and our little jamboree, everyone, everyone was assigned something like a country or we were meant to put on a skit or whatever. My Girl Scout troop tore down the wall. Like mm-hmm. well, that was our thing. And it was like this big skit we put together so that we were taking down the wall and, you know, hugging like, oh, I get to, you know, we had a reunited family and we had all these different little vignettes. And so it it was something, you know, as a child in the 80s, that was this monumentous thing. And you knew that it really meant something to the adults. It was a big deal. And they would tell us, you know, like our parents were born in the early 50s. So they, when they were young, had these drills at school. So I just, I found that whole era kind of fascinating in the same way we have some of our characters from Boy Meets World having a a similar experience. They're hearing about the time when you had to duck and cover and it was, that was going to protect you from a nuclear bomb, which is laughable. And, (laughs) but that was what, you know, there was fear and the fear was real. So the only thing that we can tell you to do is duck and cover. Yeah, we grew up in the era of Glasnost and Perestroika, right? So we missed out on the intense parts of the Cold War, like you're talking about. We missed out on the Cuban Missile Crisis and the duck and cover drills and all stuff like that. We grew up in the era of this uneasy alliance being formed, or I guess you would say like the twilight of those nuclear hostilities with the Berlin Wall coming down. And you saw that in culture, like all the James Bond movies from the Pierce Brosnan era on are sort of about that. Like what happens when the superpowers lose their enemies and the bad guys in those movies tend to go from being the other superpower to being these lone wackos that can't accept that the Cold War is over. One of my favorite movies, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, is all this sort of thinly veiled metaphor for the Cold War and the way that the sort of war heroes of, you know, yesteryear are not able to adapt. And so, yeah, I think I, for one, was blissfully unaware of all of this growing up in the 80s and 90s for the most part. But yeah, we grew up in that world where the immediate threat of nuclear catastrophe was subsiding and it was more like this global confusion almost of what happens next and where do we go from here. What's so interesting about this lineup is you see the naivete in Mr. Ed. And to be fair, Mr. Ed and Boy Meets World are our campy choices. Like they they both are sort of silly shows and they know they're silly, right? But the naivete that exists in Mr. Ed and Boy Meets World is almost like bookends to the time where 
both Golden Girls and Head of the Class were trying to talk about, which is, no, we've made mistakes on both sides. We need to look within. We need to look at each other. And we need to start to work together. And that's what both of those shows are about. And and it was actually kind of disheartening to watch Boy Meets World and have that reality kind of hit me in the face that like, oh, for a moment, we did all try to work together. And then we went back to being, and Corey Matthews says this multiple times in the Boy Meets World episode, I don't, we don't have to worry about this where I come from. And it's so, it's so simplistic that you can see the reason that we have all these issues now today, because we went back to the, oh, everything's good. And we just sweep it under the rug and we don't have to keep talking or keep worrying about it anymore because it's all fine. Yeah. The 90s, I mean, that that was a trademark of it. It was a relatively uneventful time with stuff like that. And yeah, a lot of that attitude does seem quaint or bewildering now. Anyway, let's get to Mr. Ed, our first show. I will go ahead and say probably the worst TV episode we've ever covered for various reasons. The thing we've been sort of dancing around is that the whole last third or so of this episode has a horrific yellow face performance by the actor that plays Wilbur. We'll get to that when we get to it, but by all means, if you don't like horribly racist shit, don't watch this one. It's as simple as that. But so, Mr. Ed, we know what this is. One of the dumbest sitcoms ever. I loved it as a kid. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to come in swinging that hard. We don't approve of the yellow face. But if we table that for a minute, let's just talk about Mr. Ed Mr. Ed in general was a show that was on Nickelodeon in the afternoons. And I thought it was hilarious. The talking horse. Oh, Wilbur. I thought that was too funny. Absolutely watched this when I was little. Thought it was silly. And that's who it was for, right? I mean, I guess it wasn't for kids. But to me, how could it not be? Well, this is another one of those shows where, similar to Patty Duke, the whole thing is based on a gimmick, right? So we've we've gone past the original days of Jackie Gleason and Lucille Ball setting up these shows that were these great little stage plays that would be watched by a live audience. Now we've hung on to that aesthetic, but we're doing identical cousins and talking horses and whatever the hell is going on in the Adams family and stuff like that. Right. Also in season six of, of Mr. Ed. So a show that was patently ridiculous from episode one. Made it to season six, and most of this season has this running through line of Ed and Wilbur working to foil spies, working with what they call the SIA, the Secret Intelligence Agency, to help find and root out other spies. And so there's at least four episodes They're in jumping season on, six. It's a James Bond riff. They're jumping on the James Bond popularity. Yeah, this is 1965. So this would be right around James Goldfinger or from Russia with Love or, you know, those handful of first Connery James Bond movies would be totally blowing up around this time. You can tell in the music cues that that's what they're going for in this. And again, those all go back to Cold War mentalities. So it all makes sense. But yeah, Mr. Ed, they put peanut butter or something in a horse's mouth to get it to move its lips. And they made a show about a guy who talks to his horse. 
That's right. I guess by season six, he has a wife. I don't remember him having a wife in the ones I watched back in the day, but maybe that's because I was only paying attention to the funny horse. And um, yeah, so Ed, Mr. Ed wants to get involved in another caper. And there, the last time they foiled some spy activity, um, there was a tiny radio that had been planted somewhere on the boat or the thing, you know, that the Coast Guard had been monitoring. And that has gone missing. And so Ed convinces Wilbur to call the SIA to uh, get them on the case to find the missing radio. So in the world of this show, you can basically call the FBI or the CIA or whatever agency this is supposed to be and strike a deal to crack a case, you know, to just be like, I'd like to offer my services. Let's, you know, let's throw around some figures and let's strike a deal. I mean, if you think about this, if you take this show as if it's real, that this is really a horse that can speak and ha- like thinks, right. you know, you like, so far, yeah. right? Wouldn't that horse be so bored that this is the kind of caper he'd want to get involved in? I guess, but uh, as we discover, he has to do everything by proxy through Wilbur, Correct. right? So he has to mastermind everything. At the end of the day, all that Mr. Ed really has to offer is his keen sense of smell, Right, because Wilbur... Do horses have that? I was wondering that as well. I would guess almost all animals have stronger senses than people do, right? I don't know if horses in particular, they do have giant-ass noses. Uh, I, I don't think he they're known. He made that joke in the thing. He said, I'm all nose. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard of horses being known for their smells. But then again, it makes sense. You wouldn't use horses to sniff things out because their noses are 10 feet above the ground. I don't know. The point is that Mr. Ed has Wilbur arrange for the SIA to give him some time with this glove. It's the one, the one evidence they have. The one clue is a glove that's been left over. He brings it to Mr. Ed to smell it. And Mr. Ed says, okay, I detect what? Chow mein, but not any kind of chow mein, duck chow mein. And that's not served in a lot of places. So get out the phone book and start calling every Chinese restaurant so that you can find who serves duck chow mein. Right. Now, at this point, we sort of cut over to our bad guys who are basically a Boris from Rocky and Bullwinkle style uh, Russian spy and his accomplice, right? And he's his a accomplice, guy right. In a black hat and coat, and he's talking in a silly accent. And it is very much, you know, yeah, if you grew up on James Bond movies and all the crappy knockoffs and stuff, Boris and Natasha and everything, like this at that time, I guess, would just sort of be shorthand for, oh, it's a Russian bad guy. They're sitting in a Chinese restaurant. The um, waitress comes over and says, you know, what would you like to order or something? And then and we, we realize this is the guy and that he does, in fact, hang out in a Chinese restaurant. And at that same time, Wilbur calls the place and is like, hey, do you have and is doing a horrible Texas accent. So he's like, hey, do you have uh 
you know, do you have duck chow mein or whatever? And the lady says, yes. And in fact, we're the only ones for, you know, miles and miles. Like we're the only one in town who serves it. And he was like, oh, great. I've been hankering for some ever since I came in from Texas. And uh, Wilbur, no, um, Ed, Mr. Ed slaps the phone out of his hand and says, you know, hang up. Like your Texas accent is horrible. We need to go over there. If he is there, we got to see him for real. Right. So it's starting to be clear now because we don't, I don't necessarily associate this with Mr. Ed. This actor who plays Wilbur, I think his name's Alan Young, he was Scrooge McDuck all those years on DuckTales. And so just watching this one episode, you get the sense like, oh, this guy was a voice guy, right? This was a man of a thousand voices like Robin Williams in the 80s and 90s. And this was his thing. This was his shtick. So even though I don't necessarily remember it like this, they probably made a point a lot on this show to give him this these opportunities to do funny voices. Yeah. And so that brings us to the final act of the episode where Wilbur has to go incognito as a waiter in the Chinese restaurant, which requires him to pose as a Chinese man. Picture the worst, most offensive mental concept you could have of a white man pretending to be Asian and it is nowhere close to how horrific this performance yeah, is. Yeah, it was it was so uncomfortable. Like I, I turned to Jay, I was like, we can't do this. I wrote it's down, will Mickey, we be arrested for watching this? Yeah, it's Mickey Rooney from Breakfast at Tiffany's. That is it's that stereotype. And the whole setup for this bit was confusing to me anyway, because they knew where the food was served. So they knew the restaurant and um, Mr. Ed smacks the phone out of his hand and says, no, 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 you can't tell him you want to order it or you can't tell him you're going to come down and just eat there. You've got to stake it out. And he doesn't even say that. He just says, I have a plan. And we don't know what the plan is when it cuts to, you know, commercial and then comes back on the next scene of him in this getup. And so I was completely unprepared for him to go and be a waiter at this place and go undercover in this horrible way. Anyway, so as I'm sitting there watching this, I'm like, where does this stereotype come from? Like, where does this characterization come from? Right? Because he's doing the buck teeth. Right. Like he's Asian people don't have buck teeth, buck teeth. And so I tried to look it up and they, you know, there were some things that were saying like World War II. There were the, you know, the um the Emperor of Japan had the had those circular glasses, like his glasses were um round. And so maybe that's where that came from. But the original, like these portrayals of this stuff goes back to vaudeville days the earliest one of the earliest um instances of of yellow face is mary pickford in madam butterfly like back in 1915 i mean obviously not doing the same characterization but like i just where does that even come from it's a bizarre thing to consider the movie murder by death which is like early 80s is one of my favorite movies ever it has peter sellers playing a charlie chan character like full uh Asian getup. It's bizarre. He's wearing glasses, like the Coke bottle glasses. He doesn't have in fake teeth. He's just doing like a, a buck teeth thing. And then he has on um, a hat that makes it- Oh, I thought that was supposed to be his hair. No, he has on a hat that makes it look like he has that, I think it's called like a Q haircut, yeah. where it's sort of like a, a bowl. It looks, you know, looks like a bowl, what we would call a bowl cut. 
And then that comes around to haunt him, right? Because he bends over at one point when he's serving the gangster his food um, and trying to get, try, the guy is hiding his hands because he's cold. And so he, um, Wilbur leans over to try to, you know, do some bit of business to get him to take his hands out of his coat so he can see whether or not he's wearing these gloves. And his hat falls off, revealing blonde hair. So the jig is up. Yeah, look, it's a farce. They're hiding this secret tape recorder or radio or whatever in the wind chimes. The last third or so of the episode is a sort of slapstick slash action set piece type thing where they foil the bad guys and emerge victorious. And Mr. Ed's sort of complaint at the end is that he never gets credit for any of this. Wilbur always you know, is seen as a hero for having foiled these Russian spies, which is just so like, I I understand Ed's frustration, but does he really think on top of all of the lunacy that is involved in the story thus far, that there's any way that Wilbur can explain to the SIA or to the public at large, it wasn't me that found the secret spy radio. It was my horse. Right. Who affectionately calls himself Oat Oat Seven. But yeah, that's Mr. Ed for you. So let's move on to the Golden Girls. Golden Girls, we're looking at season three. Episode six, Letter to Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah. So I miss the days when you could establish a character's interest by just opening on a shot of them holding a hardcover book with both hands. And it's just like, okay, I guess that's what they're into. Because this episode starts with Sophia just sitting at the breakfast table with a book that says like in giant letters, how to do magic or yeah, something. Magic for dummies or something. It wasn't even for dummies. It was like magic for like newborns or yeah. something. So this episode of the Golden Girls, uh, the that's going to be a B story that Sophia is getting ready for a talent show and she's trying out all different things. She wants to be a magician, then a puppeteer, then a, you know, a singer or whatever. The main story of this is going to be that Rose, Betty White, you know, who her whole role in the show is to be the sort of naive childlike person. She walks into the living room or the kitchen or whatever and says to the other characters, like, what's the deal with the Cold War? Basically, what's the deal? Like, I'm really Rose sad. Island has turned into Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Uh, in case you were wondering, so Blanche and Dorothy are sitting on the couch and Rose comes home in her Sunshine Girls outfit. She's like the the leader of a Sunshine Girls troop and she looks really down and they say, Rose, what's wrong? And she said, I'm worried about nuclear war and then walks into the other room. And so, of course, they follow her and they're like what's going on? And they have one of their fun little kitchen table conversations where Rose uh, says something that is ridiculously inane, but also begs the question, tell me more. And the Golden Girls all, you know, have that whole thing of like, oh God, are you going to ask what's more? And I don't want to yeah. ask. I'm only asking because I need to finish my coffee. I'm only asking because I need to finish my cheesecake. And so they say, what do you mean, Rose? And then she tells a ridiculous story from St. Olaf. Uh, and in this time, she is showing the drawings that her Sunshine Girl troop 
kids made. And three out of the eight of the girls drew bombs going off. And like, this is what it looks like the day after the nuclear war. Yeah. And she's all torn up that her kids, these kids are thinking about this and they're eight, nine years old. Yeah. Which is interesting based on, you know, the context we were talking about earlier. This is the Gorbachev era. Disarmament is sort of happening. I mean, to an extent, it still hasn't happened. We still right. have nuclear weapons pointed at each other. But it was being discussed and it was it was on its way to going down. And this is 1987. Yeah. Um, so this is after the, uh, you know, tear down the wall, Mr. Gorbachev, Reagan's speech, but before that actually happened. So we've got like two years here, or you know, two and a half years of these sort of ongoing negotiations between the U.S. and the former Soviet Union and the West and the former Soviet Union about disarmament. Yeah, and this was also the subject of Superman 4, Quest for Peace, that came out in 1987. And that was all about how, like, we need Superman to wag the finger at, like, all of the leaders of the world and take take all of our nuclear weapons and throw them into outer space because like not we're we're not going to be the ones to do it and as we come to find out when we meet those campers the sunshine scout girls later on in the episode they're a bunch of psychos yes i love though the main girl there's a little smarmy girl that always you know she'll she'll play into the story later but she always has a little quip and she really won me over. I thought that girl was. was oh my god! Maybe it's just because I'm a teacher. I was like, somebody needs to tell that brat to shut up. <laughs> but yeah, Rose says. Uh, I wrote down a direct quote. I'm taking my troop camping in two weeks. I don't want this nuclear war business to spoil our fun, right? So she's gonna send a letter to Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan, asking them both to. Uh, disarm to, to put away their nuclear weapons yeah she said you know a well-worded letter will make a difference it, it, it i think it i think it will make a difference and of course blanche and dorothy are just kind of laughing at her you know so rose is taking her girl scout troop or the off-brand uh, sunshine girl troop out for a trip and it pales in comparison to what happens in Mr. Ed, but we get a little bit of questionable racial stuff here because she comes back in the house and goes, oh, I didn't know it was a full moon. I forgot my, uh, she doesn't say Native American headdress, but that's that's what it is. And she grabs that and does one of those like whooping war cry type things and like trots out of the out of the house. So yeah, a lot of sketchy stuff uh, racially on this on this one. <laughs> so this episode, though, they make an attempt to try to say, um, you know, just a few things about how the people who live in Russia and the people who live in the United States aren't all that different. And we're going to see this go that next step further in Head of the Class. But that is something that this episode tries to get across, that the leaders are actually behind the times. And the fact that the leaders of these two superpowers can't get it together to start disarming, even though the kids understand and the people who live in each country understand that that needs to start happening. 
So they get Rose leaves with her questionable headdress. Uh, sorry, it's not even questionable. Rose leaves with her inappropriate headdress. And then there's an immediate knock at the door. And there's a guy there who is another Boris type character. So he shows up and he says, hey, um, you know, are you Rose and Island or, or you know, Asks if Rose is there. No, Rose isn't there. Well, here's a letter from Premier Gorbachev, and we would like her to come to Russia, to come to Moscow and meet him. And uh, he was really touched by her letter, and we're going to have a press conference in a couple of days, so let her know. Yeah, so this was a pretty clever premise, I think, because the characters are all amazed and confused like what she wrote this dopey letter to gorbachev and somehow he's like inviting her to the country which granted there are many layers of ridiculousness to this many of which the show does not address you know i don't even know how she would know like where to send the letter but, the same way that kids who write to the presidents do yeah you, so. you just the white house mr reagan like yeah. they're used to that stuff but the letter i guess does get to him and what none of them consider is that Rose's simplistic way of communicating resembles that of a child. Right. So he leaves and they're getting ready. They're going to have a press conference in a couple of days. And then the next scene we get uh, is Rose on the couch. She's come home after the very long you know, sleepover or the camping trip that was messed up by rain. And she's just having a nap, having a lie down on the couch and dream sequence. She's in Moscow giving her press conference and the snow is coming down and they're all in the furs. And There's a big banner. There's like three big banners uh, yes. the way they would have like of world leaders. And it's like Lenin on the left and another famous Russian leader on the right. And then Betty White in the middle one. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing is very silly. They did not spring for the location shooting like some of our other stuff did. No, they did not. So they have this dream sequence and, you know, uh, Dorothy gets mistaken for a former premier of Russia, Brezhnev. And the crowd starts chanting his name when she steps up to the mic as though she looks like him. I thought, like what always happens to Dorothy. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a fun little gag. And then Sophia comes in and makes a joke about how she wasn't invited. And um, she had to hitch a ride with some German guy who dropped her in Red Square. Well, so then they wake Rose up. And she expresses disappointment that she had written the letter to Reagan four days earlier than she wrote the letter to Gorbachev, and yet Reagan still hasn't Yeah, responded. the joke is sort of that she doesn't realize how amazing it is that she got a response back from Gorbachev. When they tell her, like, you're never going to believe this, Gorbachev wrote back and he wants to see you, she's like, okay, but what about Reagan? But anyway, there's, I guess prior to this, this trip that's going to happen, they have to do a press conference at their house conveniently enough, right? Because everything in a sitcom happens at the house. So the same Russian diplomat comes with a bunch of press people. They set up a little makeshift press conference in their living room. But that's when everything comes out in the open because the, the diplomat sees their Girl Scout troop and is like, which one of them is Rose? Right. Well, even before that, right there, he is speaking with Rose and Dorothy. I'm sorry. He's speaking with Dorothy and Blanche. And he says, you know, is Rose here? And they said, no, she's gone out to get her um, her sunshine girls troop. 
And he goes, oh, great. She'll have some girls her age here. And they said, what? And he was like, how old is she? Is she nine or is she 10? And they were like, uh, she's closer to 10. Uh, and then yeah. they go into the kitchen and then Rose comes in with the girls from the, from the troop and they're all standing there and they are able, Dorothy and Blanche are able to tell Rose this confusion before the man walks in. And then the man walks in and Blanche grabs that salty little girl that you had mentioned before and was like, here she is. And kind of thrust her forward as though she's going to go out and do the press conference. Yeah. And you feel for them in this situation. It's ridiculous that they find themselves here, but the embarrassment of like, Oh God, what do we do? It's this sort of no win scenario and so they decide at first, all right, I guess we'll just give them what they want, send one of the little girls out, have her read the letter, and, uh, you know, save face. And of course, the girl's like, oh, so this is okay, even though you said scouts never lie? Okay, good to know, and goes out to do it. And so Rose doesn't have the heart. She comes out and basically says, sorry, everybody, I'm the simpleton that wrote that letter. It's me, <laughs> you know, 68-year-old Rose Nylon, not a 10-year-old kid. Yeah. And, you know, she just she doesn't say all of that, right? She just is like, oh, yeah, I'm the, you know, I'm the one that wrote the letter. And then the Russian diplomat guy is like, oh, press conference over. And, uh, and if you need me, um, I'm Miami's newest resident. My name is Dave and like runs out the door indicating that he's going to be in big trouble with the higher ups for making this error. But yeah, so the episode kind of ends with them all sitting around and they're like, well, Rose, let us let us read your letter, you know, because she's she's mortified, understandably. But they're like, come on, let us read it. And so it's this sort of weird tone where they read the letter aloud, and I think we're supposed to take it as like, yes, it may be a little childlike, but it's the truth. And this is sort of our stance as the Golden Girls TV show. And it basically is like, Mr. Gorbachev, please get rid of the new or sorry, I wrote it down verbatim. Unplug the bombs, she says, right? Yes. She wants them to get rid of the nuclear weapons. It's not nice to be pointing potentially existentially destructive weapons at each other. And, you know, we're, we're supposed to kind of come away from it going like, you know, she's right. Well, and so there's also a line in the letter that would lead to the confusion about her age because she says, I'm writing to tell you I'm really worried about the nuclear war and I've heard that there are enough bombs to blow up the world a hundred times and it scares me. It scares the girls in my cadet troop right. too. So it makes it sound like those are her right. friends. Like my fellow that. Girl Scouts exactly. as opposed to the children in my care. Golden Girls will never leave you on that kind of a... Oh, moment, right? Unless it has something to do with female empowerment. Because what they're really going to leave you on is phone rings. Rose goes to pick up the phone and it is President Reagan. And she's like, oh my gosh, Reagan read my letter. He said, thank you. You know, he was uh, ha happy that I wrote it and, he, you know, whatever. And she's like, oh, I feel so much better because she'd been very down. She's like, oh, I feel so much better. And she goes bustling out of the of the kitchen and then in walks Sophia and she says, I know what talent I'm going to use at the talent show. She points to the phone and she says, my Ronald Reagan impression. There you go. Moving on to the real main event here, head of the class. So we talked about head of the class on our very first 
podcast episode, right? Yes. I am on record as being a huge class head, right? I loved this show as a kid. This was probably the first TV sitcom I ever really got into. You know, I think I think I had a a little fling with Webster maybe when I was like a toddler, (laughs) but I was really into head of the class. And like I said, this three episode arc, I had taped off TV. I watched it as though it were a movie ad nauseum. And I knew very little about the context of this. For one thing, about how this this three-episode arc, that besides whatever was going on within the fictional world of the show, the actual production of these episodes was historic, right? Because they went right. over to Russia to film. This was like the, the ping pong game with China in the 70s. You know, yes. this was a big deal. Big deal. This was the first TV sitcom to ever go behind the Iron Curtain. They began this journey the season prior where they had the trivia team. The kids uh, in the class are on a trivia team and they play Russia and the trivia tournament is held in the United States. And it is it ends in a tie. And the invitation comes from their Russian counterparts to please come to Moscow and let you know and join us. Uh, And we'll we'll do a rematch here. So that was set up in the previous season. And then we're at the beginning of season three, we have episode two, which is them kind of preparing to find out whether or not they're going to be allowed to go. Right. And the anticipation of the trip for right. various members. For all the yeah, for all the different reasons that they have. And then season three, episodes three and four, which are the two part and it aired as a one hour special. It was considered event television. It was huge. There were write ups in the LA Times and the New York Times and in tons of Hollywood trade magazines because of the, I mean, at the time it was three hundred thousand dollars extra in an expense, which is like the to- put the total cost of these two episodes to go shoot in uh, Moscow at one point five million in nineteen eighty eight dollars. And they had, you know, they really had something to say. And so, in the interviews with the producers, you hear them talking about, you know, what we realized when we were there, and uh, the different ways, even that the, you know, the teamsters and <laughs> And the like crew guys function and how a TV show gets shot in the United States was different from what was going on uh, in the TV shows they were shooting there. And they hired a ton of Russian actors to be in the show. Well, and in some cases, non-actors. We'll get to that when we go to the school part. But yeah, it obviously was a case of let's get the cast of head of the class on a plane to Russia and everyone else is going to be Russian. You know, we're going to be in touch with whatever local casting services we are. And yeah, the whole thing is very authentic in that way. And so looking back on it now, I realize one of the reasons why I liked it so much is even though I didn't understand as a kid, the significance of an American sitcom shooting in Russia, The whole feel of the show is completely different because they are shooting on location. Head of the Class was normally shot on a stage like a sitcom with a real audience laughing and everything. And so they take this show on the road. They don't do the fake laughter. This set of episodes is all shot 
single camera out in the world, no laughter. It just feels very different. And so even not understanding all of the Cold War context, as a kid, I definitely picked up on, oh, this is kind of like a movie, even though it's shot on cheap video. And I'm pretty sure they didn't do any like lighting or anything. Like, I think this sort of has the production of like a modern TikTok video in that sense. They just oh, went modern TikTok filming. videos look even better. This is your dad took his camcorder on vacation. Yeah. In some ways, yes, it is shot like a vacation video. But nonetheless, I definitely enjoyed the fact that it was such a departure from that sort of stage-bound sitcom feel. Yeah, and they they do a good job because they 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 sort of pair up all the classmates in these little groupings and you know, each of the pairs has a little bit of a storyline. So Dr. Samuels is the principal and also like the head of this trivia team. He's super competitive and he just wants the kids to study, study, study. They have like two and a half days in Russia before their competition. And he is like, all you're going to do is get off the plane and study from morning till night till you have to go to the competition. And the teacher, Mr. Moore, who's played by Howard Hessman, he is advocating for the high schoolers to have a free day which is surprising to me as someone who has chaperoned many a school trip, even high schoolers don't get free days to go roam around okay. foreign countries. Well, let's hang on that because <laughs> that is the second reason why I love this as a kid is that concept. Going into it, all of the student characters have their own agendas, which we'll get to. And Mr. Moore is always, his role is to be on the side of human development Culture. and having but also just just them having a, a rich life. And yes. yeah, he wants them to go and experience the culture and he wants them to do that by following their interests. Right. The thing that you're talking about, the fact that even though they're played by older people in most cases, the fact that as students, as teenagers, they get to break off and go around a foreign city just like with the buddy system, just in pairs of friends. That was amazing to me. That was the same vicarious thrill as watching the Goonies do the treasure hunt and, you know, run away from the evil criminals and stuff. Just to imagine being on a trip like that where you could just go around with your friend through the city of Moscow. Uh, yeah, that was unbelievable. Yeah. So he, uh, Mr. Moore negotiates with Dr. Samuels to actually get them a free day. Um, and that's because Dr. Samuels uh, is convinced that there's a bug in his hotel room. And so all of the kind of like the Russians are bad guys. The Russians are all spies. They're all out to get us. They're all reds. They're all commies. They're horrible. All of that sort of sentiment lives within the principal. Yes. He's the one that kind of has all of that bias. And so he uh, he is scouring his room for bugs. And, and we're talking about like a hidden microphone, hidden microphone, not like a cockroach. Right, hidden microphone. And he lifts up a rug and there's a metal plate with a couple of screws in it. And he says, aha, I found it. And he pulls out his handy dandy, you know, 12 option tool thing and unscrews it. And the chandelier in the dining room below falls onto a table in front of the students. So he's like, oh, you never saw this. And uh, Mr. Moore is like, and the kids have a free day? And he said, 
barring it. Yeah, so he sort of blackmails him. He blackmails him. And it makes sense because if the show has a sense of peace and diplomacy, Dr. Samuels is the ridiculous character, right? right? Mr. Moore is the benevolent authority figure. Dr. Samuels is the ridiculous and not malevolent, but petty uh, you know, higher authority figure. So by having those old timey combative uh, attitudes be assigned to him, we're showing, you know, that that's, that's not what we as the show are embracing. Right. So everyone in the class has a free day to spend however they want and they pair up. Right. And we get to see how each one of them spends their free day. I guess the simplest one, he doesn't even get a pair. Juwar Halal. Right. The character who always had the least to do in Head of the Class and eventually got written off the show. Juwar Halal wants to have his copy of Gorbachev's book signed by Gorbachev. So he right. goes up to a bunch of different like security guards and military people who are just sort of walking around and on guard and whatever and is like, can you give this to Gorbachev? Yeah. So we're talking about this the we're talking about the comic strip style of narrative. This would be like the single panel comic strip. Yeah. Darlene and Sarah want to make a documentary. So they brought the school's video equipment and they're going to go around town shooting footage of Moscow. And this is one of several instances where there are clearly non-actor people, not only non-actors, people who don't want to be on camera. And right. they're very clearly hostile and confused at the, you know, probably very bare bones film crew that's running around trying to film them with these teenagers. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of really lovely real footage of like a market in Moscow, uh, you know, people out at the park and there's, you know, they are interviewing them. Most of the time, we're not hearing any sound. It's just like you're seeing them talking to them, but they haven't actually used the sound of that footage. But it is nice to see that, like those snippets of real life yes. in the show. It's genuine, but it's one of those things like it, it's genuine for better or worse because right, you it have legitimately looks like a high schooler took the video camera out and recorded. Yeah, some and stuff. it's it's <laughs> awkward. You have Robin Givens and the girl that plays Sarah are keeping that smile and dancing and waving and stuff with these like random townspeople who, like I said, just look kind of confused and surly. Well, not always. Sometimes no, not they're always. happy. Alan and Maria go looking around. Alan, basically, he's your young Republican uh, sort of like conservative debate club type kid. And his whole mission is to just sort of prove how shitty it is to live in Russia and to sort of like, I don't know, he wants to savor like how their country is crumbling or something because it just fits with his whole character. He would be the one fully on board with the hard line Cold War stance. And he comes upon a poster shop that has all these Soviet era, like Lenin era posters. Right. It's it's uh, like a poster shop that has old propaganda posters. Right. And he's all in his, you know, uh, all got his panties in a wad because he's like, what does that one say? What does that one say? And he's asking the shopkeeper who's explaining it. And then this other guy, young man, young boy comes in and sees him or hears him and starts answering him but given it as good as he gets yeah they you know they have a little tit for tat about well your country is this well your country is that yeah and it ends with one of my favorite little exchanges in the episode because this kid is speaking pretty good english to not Alan. pretty good english 
perfect English. Yeah, he just like, has an accent. He's fine. <laughs> yeah. English is great. And so they're having this little debate about capitalism versus communism, whatever. And Alan goes, uh, first of all, allow me to congratulate you on your rudimentary knowledge of English. And the Russian kid goes, yes, and I would like to sympathize with you on your complete ignorance of Russian. I mean, Not to commercial. and as it, like, exactly. This is the thing. Every time you hear these, like, you know, superior Americans being like, well, why not this? And why not this? Like what it all boils down to. You know what? You speak one language. Stop thinking you're better than everybody. Your country is a baby. Right. And so spoiler alert, this kid that he meets in the poster shop is going to end up being on the Russian uh, academic team. And, you know, we're going to have that reveal later. Dennis and Arvid want to go to the science museum, especially Arvid. They're just kind of, you know, uh, like sort of doing the most normal stuff, just kind of going around and seeing the sights, and they come across two Russian girls, two teenagers. And at first, they're excited because they feel like they don't know about nerds. They don't, they won't be able to tell that Dennis and Arvid are socially weird and they'll think that they're cool, hot guys. Right. They go over and they ask them, like, have you ever heard of a nerd? And they're like, nerd, nerd, no. That was in the commercials. I remember that being like a big sort of selling point. point. Do you know what a nerd is? And the Russian girls kind of looking at each other confused. And then they say, oh, a nerd is a cool guy. And so the girls are like, cool guy. Okay. Yeah, but they can't help shooting themselves in the foot because no sooner than they start hanging out with these Russian girls and it's going well and the girls like them, Dennis concludes that must mean that they're KGB spies or or they're KGB like enforcers. He hears them talking because they have been kind of walking around and like walking around this park and doing all of these just sort of wandering kinds of things, but together. And we keep having these moments where like the girls are having a private conversation and the boys are having this private conversation. And Dennis in one of these moments overhears one of the girls say KGB. And he says to Arvid, Arvid, she said KGB. They work for the KGB. They're after us. They want to implant things in our brain. That they're we're the perfect we're the perfect things. That's what they're you know. And he just loses it and goes off the deep end and and like they're out to get them. And Arvid's like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. Part of it is that Dennis immediately is like, "Well, why else would they talk to us unless they were agents?" And part of it is that. He's been obsessed with the KGB and the gulags and going to Siberia and all of this sort of living on the edge aspect of this from the start. Because he was the one that wanted to smuggle in blue jeans and beetle tape to sell. But then, you know, they were talking about, oh, what happens if we get caught? So he's just got this sort of melodramatic bent to him in general. They make plans to meet up again the next day, even though they don't think they're going to have any time the next day, they're planning to like sneak away. And that's a key factor in several of these vignettes. These people, you know, the kids make contact with locals and then want to hang out again the next day when they won't have any time. Right. So Eric and Simone are going to initially spend the day together, but they have different ideas of how to spend it. Now, Eric is the tough guy kid that almost didn't get to go because he's not properly on the academic team, but he has family in Russia. And And he's the alternate. Right. 
Mr. Moore arranged for him to be able to go. So he's got this family that he wants to see. And in general, he just has a more sort of like human taste in what he wants to do. Whereas Simone wants to visit the graves of various dead poets and sort of landmarks and yeah, pay tribute to Chekhov and you know, whatever other uh, Russian artists she admires. Right. And so they decide to go their separate ways because he wants to go and kind of have authentic Russian experiences. And she's like, what's more authentic than like paying tribute to Chekhov? And he's like, but that's just still a like a touristy place. Like I want to go and meet Russian people and eat Russian food and do that. Yeah. Which I'm definitely on team Eric with this one. When he says, uh, you know, Simone says something like, well, these were great artists or great poets. And he says, yeah, I'll read what they wrote. I don't need to look at their gravestone or I don't need to read what's written on his tombstone. Right. And that I, I agree. You know, I, I've never been one for those like, yep, this is the place. This, that's, that's where it happened. <laughs> so yeah, they split up. They're always, you know, there's always tension between Eric and Simone. This is no different. So they go their separate ways and Eric meets his distant relative right, right. he and meets like up a with her cousin who looks like a hot red-headed russian version of simone but also him because she's wearing a leather jacket which right. is which is eric's trademark look so it she is a weird combination of the both of them it's like what if i looked like simone but dressed like you i would basically be the perfect woman for you and he even makes a remark like are you sure we're related? You know, which was kind of creepy, but <laughs> but it's understandable. Yeah. She's coming from another continent. He's never met her before. She literally just like comes out of the crowd and is like, "You must be Eric." And she explains, uh, "Yeah, there's this whole family that's waiting to meet you, but they're not available today. We're gonna all get together tomorrow. You know, you and me, I, you and me can hang out." today and like you said this is one of several instances where he's basically like uh i'll see what i can do but i'm supposed to have an academic bowl right and so i mean he you know if something goes down it is what it is his whole reason for being there is to see his family anyway and his backstory is that he doesn't have a real stable home life so his parents are divorced and he's kind of, you know, he's the tough guy, tough kid, because he's on his own on the streets of New York. You know what I mean? Like he, you know, has a place to live, but he doesn't have a real solid like nuclear family that he can rely on in New York. So then the next day when he actually does get to go and meet the family, it's a really emotional moment. It's it, And it's one. Of, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's his story. And then you have Mr. Moore and Janice. And Janice is the little one, right? She's like 12 or 13. Yeah, she's a child prodigy. So she doesn't buddy up with one of the other teenagers. She just sticks with Mr. Moore. And they go to a school. And this is another one of these real footage, like real actual school that they went to. They go to a high school class that is um, their Russian students taking an English class. And 
they the students were prepared that you know the film crew was coming and that they were going to be able to ask questions in english and so we get this great montage of question after question after question and it's just like teenagers normally would some of them have really serious questions and some of them are trying to like show off and be funny the teacher is a russian actress but all of the students are real kids and this was obviously just a little event that they kind of set up and filmed. The scene is very charming. It's not like we get any, you know, revelatory information or anything, but Mr. Moore strikes up a sort of flirty banter with the teacher. One of the students asks him, who's who's prettier, Russian girls or American girls or something? And he says, kind of like, hey, when in Rome, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Which leads to a date. We get a date yeah. later on with the two of them in this, again, in this second day when they aren't supposed to have free time, Mr. Moore also, you know, gives himself some free time to have a have a date with um, this Russian teacher. And they have a nice exchange as well. So that's how everybody spends their free day. We come back to the hotel where they're staying. We meet the Russian team. And so the team and the school that we know, the head of the class kids, are are all expecting this to be the same Russian team that they had met in the previous season. And then as the Russian team is announced and they're coming down the stairs, it's completely different kids. And everyone's like, what's going on? What's going on? And the Russian coach says to Dr. Samuels, oh, well, this is like a super team because the other team, they weren't good enough to make the cut this year. Yeah, which is a clever contrivance because it gives you story-wise, oh, this is a bigger and better team than the ones we're used to. It's like a sequel. It's more challenging. But the real reason they're doing it, obviously, was because those other kids were American, you know, right. maybe, um, yeah. maybe Russian Americans, but those were American actors that they shot back in season one. They're not paying to fly them out to Russia. So we're getting a whole new cast of characters cast in Russia. And yeah, so it's setting up that the team is even more intimidating than they thought. And then that sort of takes us to the second day. You know, it's hours before the tournament now. Everyone's exhausted. As Dr. Samuels made them stay up all night studying, cramming to be ready for this. They've had very little sleep. And he finally says, you know, okay, I see that you need a break. Everybody go upstairs, take a nap for three hours. I'll meet you back down here at whatever time. Or I'll meet you at the, you know, the hall at whatever time. So, of course, everyone's like, sweet, we're going out. Yeah, so everyone gets to sort of resume their various journeys that they were on. When all the kids got their few hours of uh, rest time before the meet, Mr. Moore meets up with the teacher again, and they go for a walk. And like everything else, it's truncated into a little two-minute thing, but it's it's sort of two parts, right? The first part is Mr. Moore asking her just like let, let's rap like teacher to teacher like what's what are you trying to do like what do you feel like you're getting through what's what's your deal with that and she says i don't know she says i want them to get used to this new openness i don't want them to have the the adversarial feelings the the xenophobia maybe that that we grew up with and then the second part of it is what what is your perception of my country, right? What right. do you think about the United States? And she says, well, 
I think everyone's in debt. There is no culture and everyone owns a gun. Right. Which is interesting. Like I remember that that was probably my first exposure to those stereotypes. And he, he sort of makes a joke of it. He goes, you know, there's only one gun for every four people. (laughs) And I was surprised by that when I moved overseas because I I didn't have any idea. The perception was that every American owned a gun. We didn't have guns in my house growing up. So it was just strange to me when I first moved overseas to have that like realization or hear from people like, oh, do do you have a gun? You You didn't bring your gun with you, did you? And I was like, wait, what? Oh. And this is a decade before Columbine or any of those kind of horrors oh, yeah. where you would yeah. be thinking about that. But yeah, there was still already that stereotype. And sure, the thing about no culture, I mean, if you're in Russia, it's you have music and theater and stuff that goes back centuries, you know. So it's just like, yeah, your your country was a forest at the time that we were, you know, coming up with our culture and our literature. So yeah, you know, I could see all of that. So meanwhile, Eric has gone to visit his Russian family that he's never met before. He's giving this heartfelt speech that I don't know if I would have that reaction. He basically says, I didn't think you could love people so much having known them for such a small amount of time. And I, I've, I've never been in this situation, but I would, I don't know. He, he's, you know, supposed to be 17 years old-ish. He meets all these people that he's he's never really met before, and he just sort of has this instant bond with them. And of course, it's, you know, hitting that point that in the midst of the Cold War, for some people, you could have more of a family in Russia than in, you know, that that family knows no political or geographic borders, you know, it's it's trying to make that point. And the other thing we need to establish here is just that Eric, because of how involved this all is, is pushing his luck in terms of getting back to the hotel in time to go to the academic bowl. Right. And so same with Arvid and Dennis. They had this plan to meet up with the girls at the Space Museum. Right. Um, but it was, you know, they were going to end up standing them up and then they had this free time. So they were like beelining it over there. Well, we learn at the Space Museum about Belka and Strelka. That's right. right. We get this scene. And again, this is probably... You know, this is more tourism by way of sitcom, right? They're they're showing us, you know, hey, you Americans, you probably haven't been to the Space Museum in Moscow. Here's what it's like. And so, of course, the Russian space program is historic. So, you know, there's stuff about Sputnik and whatnot, but they focus on Belka and Strelka, the two space dogs. I personally find these stories very disturbing. Uh, Laika and then Belka and Strelka, the dogs that they sent into space. The concept of animals, especially dogs, being being sent into outer space, um, it just like it's the kind of thing I have to like not think about or or it upsets me. But anyway, they learn about Belka and Strelka, the two space dogs. And their respective girls, Natasha and so-and-so, I forget what their names are, but the girls decide, you guys, Arvid and Dennis, you're Belka and Strelka, right? Arvid, you're Belka because you're cute and, and shy, 
And the other one's like, oh, and you're a Strelka because you're cuddly like a teddy bear or something. It's it's not a very logical comparison, but that that becomes their pet names. They, yes, they were cute, and then they have a little bit of a falling out because I guess Dennis has it in his head that they're KGB agents, and he goes in for a kiss and is like, "Well, aren't you gonna like trying to seduce me? Like, isn't that's what this is all about anyway? You're KGB, you're this, and like acts like a total asshole, and the girl rightfully smacks him yeah. and is like, "What?" We're not KGB. We work in the cafeteria, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Classic one-two punch of going in for the kiss and being shot down and then accusing the person of being a KGB spy. So the whole thing, they've just totally sort of ruined it. Well, Dennis has ruined it with his girl. And then the other girl sort of feels, you know, bad, doesn't really want to leave Arvid, but is like, okay, you know, Bilka, I'll see you later. And, and Arvid's like, are you still going to come to the tournament? And she was like, looks at her friend and is like, oh, we'll see. So then we have Arvid and Dennis realizing how late it is. And the tournament is starting and everyone's freaking out because half the team isn't there. Well, Eric is missing and Arvid and Dennis. Arvid and Dennis realize that they're running late, so they got to find their way back, but they can't figure out the girls were the ones that had gotten them there. Yes. And they didn't know how to get back without the girls helping them. So they're trying to read the Cyrillic alphabet um, to figure out the Russian subway system and are failing miserably. And they get separated. Dennis steps onto a subway train, the doors close. So yeah, they're separated in subterranean Moscow. And I really felt for him because it just reminds you, you know, it's 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 a cliche to say it now, but before the internet, you know, before cell phones, it just it was so much harder, you know, forget about being in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. So we're we're in a montage basically of Dennis Narvid frantically sort of comically running around. There's a point where they pass each other on escalators going in different directions. They can't do anything about it. And ultimately Dennis gets to where he needs to be by being apprehended by police. He thinks that, again, KGB agents, they're trying to arrest me. They're going to throw me in the gulags. And so when Dennis is apprehended by these guys, of course, no, they're just police officers helping him. Like they've been alerted. Oh, this kid's lost. You know, he needs to get to the, wherever the academic meet is. So they take him to the academic meet. Eric makes his way there. So at this point, we're sort of into the the climax here where we've got the whole team, the whole class, minus Arvid, facing off against the Russians. And it's showing us, again, sort of montage style. Uh, first of all, this is a very well-attended academic bowl. I guess if, if you're talking about the Russia versus United States in yeah. the Cold War, sure, I guess I could see it. Absolutely. This is a big deal. Like yeah. you've got, you know, heads of state, like people are interested. Yeah, it's there's there's lots of people watching. The Russians take an early lead. Then we get a little montage of the Fillmore High School, you know, our our students sort of catching up once Dennis and Eric get involved. And then it sort of, it comes to this climactic conclusion. Meanwhile, we're cutting back and forth to Arvid finding some Russian Boy Scouts. And he goes, me, right. Scout Ski, Eagle Ski. Oh, you know? that's, you know, I haven't mentioned that, but that drove me nuts. 
like so much and it was Dennis and Arvid mostly that did it but it was like anytime they were like trying to say something in Russian they said the English word and they added ski yeah. on the end which they're, is so horrible oh it's stupid they're they're just doing the same thing of people normally do it with Spanish where they go like El Caro is in El Garajo that's yeah, fucking it, confusing to a person who speaks the actual language well, and of course it's, it's so rude like why I like oh Hollywood writers it's not funny it's racist yeah it's idiotic so uh yeah Arvid is telling them I'm an e- I'm an Eagle Scout you know, I'm a Boy Scout just like you. And so these kids on bicycles. Right. He gets to ride on the back of a bicycle and they take him to the big, you know, like it, like it does look like a church. It's got all the like stained glass windows and stuff. Yeah. And so I was a little incredulous about this climactic ending. What happens is it's it's a tie, right? It's It's like sort of sudden death, like final lightning round type thing. And the rule is the teams get to make questions for each other. So the Americans ask the, a question about um, an American athlete, I think, and they get it wrong. And so it's like, Americans, it's your game to win if you can answer this question from the Russians. And the Russians' question is, what are the names of the two dogs that the Russian space program sent into space. And so Dennis just gets this cackle of joy. <laughs> All the rest of them are like, oh shit, like how how can no how could anybody know that? But Dennis is like, guys, leave it to me. And like, rings in without even consulting the team. Yeah. It's just like slams the buzzer. Yeah. I know this. Yeah. And then blank. Well, no, he goes, okay, so first you got your Strelka, right? He gets that one right out of the gate because he's Strelka, according to the girlfriends. Like, so you got Strelka and then you got, and he can't summon the other one and the clock is ticking and he's going in. It sounds like Strelka. It sounds like Strelka. And meanwhile, Arvid is like step by step, you know, sprinting into the auditorium. He is, he's like the guy breaking up a wedding at the end of a movie or right, something. He's going down, down the, the center aisle. aisle. Yeah. And he kind of waves. He goes like, hey. Well, and I'm waiting because he can't join the team. The team's now full because mm. they were two down, right? And Eric and Dennis showed up. So he couldn't answer even if he gets there so i'm like how is this gonna help oh my goodness this is the head of the class version of the crane kick at the end of the karate kid dennis spots arvid with a second left on the clock and goes Elka! you know because that's his cue to remember and they win this has been your best <laughs> friend for years right like a couple hours ago some girl you met goes, oh, hey, you two are like Belka and Strelka. And now this his face is a cue for you to think of Strelka every time you see him. Or Belka. Yeah. Eh, stranger things have happened. They win the match. Everyone's friends. They're shaking hands. Juar Halal gets his signed copy of the Gorbachev book. And then we sort of transition to this concert. It's a mega happy ending like in Wayne's World. And yeah, you can see them trying to put forth this idea of the new era is here, right? It is, you know, uh, openness. It is glasnost and perestroika, and we're all going to be friends. And so, you know, let's try to be open-minded and get used to it. All right, let's move on to Boy Meets World. 
Boy Meets World, we're looking at Season 3, Episode 19, I Was a Teenage Spy. Now, I'm going to say, coming off ahead of the class, keeping an open mind and an open heart, I don't really like Boy Meets World. I was never into it. I always kind of felt like the serious episodes were too serious, and the goofy stuff was too goofy. I see a lot of the 90s Jim Carrey influence coursing through Ben Savage in these episodes. He's got that energy, that's that smarmy, sort of like amped up energy that kind of rubs rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I I wasn't into this one. What's what's your experience with Boy Meets World? Well, so Boy Meets World was one of those later TGIF shows. And we just happened to be of that age where as Boy Meets World was kind of coming in, coming into TGIF and then coming into its own and becoming the thing that people watched on TGIF or that kids watched for on TGIF, we were kind of in high school. And so my experience with Boy Meets world was when they were still young and I was watching, you know, Ben Savage and Topanga and Ryder Strong and all of them as younger than me, a show that was about the three, these three kids that were younger than me. And I remember thinking that Eric, the older brother was super hot. And I was like, oh yeah. And then I, and that was early, early days of, you know, Boy Meets World. And then would randomly drop in and randomly on a Friday night be home and watch TGIF with my brother or whatever. And these kids were now a little bit older. And the one character that I did like on the show, Eric, because I thought he was cute, the older brother, they turned him into a nitwit. He was like a a doorknob. Like he was so dumb in the later episodes that I just was like, what is the point of the show? It's like children and a dumb guy that's my age. This is stupid. I'm not watching it. But and that, another sort of wannabe Jim Carrey vibe with him. Yeah, right? he did later. Yeah, you're right. He did have that like sort of wacky energy. But anyway, all that to say, I know that my experience is not most people, particularly people younger than us. Like that's not their experience. People younger than us and just a little younger than us love Boy Meets World in the same way that we love Family Matters and Full House and put yes, up with all saved the, by the bell. badness Absolutely, about it. Absolutely. I should make that caveat completely clear that anything I could possibly say about Boy Meets World applies tenfold to Saved by the Bell. And I love that show. It is absolutely about when you encounter it. And yeah. I was probably in high school when this started. I was in college, I think, when it was like really at its peak. And yeah, this wasn't my thing. So this episode, like we were saying, is kind of a nice parabola that hooks us back around to Mr. Ed. And this is talking more about the 50s right. version of the Cold War. Right. So we've got Ben Savage, the boy in uh, the titular boy in Boy Meets World. And he's got to write a paper, uh, a history term paper. He's got to write a paper on Sputnik. On so Sputnik. that part harkens right. back to head of the class. That's right. So he's got to write this history term paper on Sputnik. And the whole family's in the kitchen. And there's uh, they're saying, oh, you know, why is the microwave unplugged? And the mom's like, oh, I unplugged it because it was making this weird noise. Well, but yeah, but before we get the magical microwave, it's established there's a whole thing of like, oh, you guys had it easy. 
You know, like, oh, that's right. Being being a teenager in the 90s is hard. You know, back in the 50s, everything was simple. And they're like, no, in the 50s, we had to worry about, you know, the Russians. Yeah, we had to worry about nuclear war. It was a constant threat, right? But then his parents were also quick to point out, we weren't teenagers in the 50s. Yeah. We were teenagers in the 70s. And he's like, whatever, same yeah, thing. He's like, no, I have an idea for an episode about the 50s. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the 50s. So I'm going to do this. And so then Mr. Feeney comes in, who was a teenager in yes. the 50s. And he was like, no, you know, it was serious times and kind of gives gives weight to the parents' argument saying that, you know, the 50s weren't so magical and beautiful and wonderful and easy. And then we get the magical microwave thing, right? Where the where he goes to plug the microwave back in and he shocks himself and then Yeah. Now let's just not let's make sure we don't gloss over this too fast because I want to point out this is only season three of this show and we're already very casually having plot developments like main character plugs in a microwave and is sent back in time 40 years. Well, this is the first time on this show that they do that. This is the first like alternate reality thing, alternate dream episode thing that they do. But it was so well received. They became an ongoing thing that happened so, all the time on the show. So this is the most explanation that it ever gets, which is none. <laughs> Which is fine. Don't get me wrong. Like, if you're going to do something like this, I think it's better to have it just happen and not have the explanation. But it is, he plugs in the microwave, gets zapped or whatever, and he's in the 50s. And he wakes up, yeah, and he's in the 50s, and he's wearing very 90s clothes. He's got huge baggy jeans. He's got this giant Argyle sweater. And now he's back in the 50s, and he goes to school. Yeah, this is basically a riff on Back to the Future, right? The plot isn't the same, but the idea of let's go to a high school in the 50s and kind of have a modern day teenager hanging out with the 50s kids. You know, this would have been about 10 years after Back to the Future, but Back to the Future 2 came out in 89 and Back to the Future 3 was... 90. So I feel like that was still kind of hanging around. And they even steal the joke of having him say, my name is Brad Pitt, right? In Back to the Future 3, Marty goes like, my name is uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. So that same thing of, oh, I'm going to pick like a cool guy that you that none of you have heard of and say that that's my name. But yeah, he's going to hang out with the 50s analog of all of our characters. So we still have Topanga and Sean and everybody. Right. So Sean is, he is wearing a leather jacket. He's like a greaser. Seanzy. Yeah, he's Seanzy Hunterelli, totally doing an Arthur Fonzarelli kind of thing. That's what he's, Seanzy uh, Hunterelli. I didn't get that. I didn't put that together. I was like, Seanzy sounds like like a little kid or something. No, it's okay, Fonzie and then Fonzarelli. So you've got, that's the name thing. And then you have Topanga, who has a big, like kind of beehive sort of flip hairdo and the bow like right at her, you know, kind of just above her forehead, really prominent. And she's always chewing gum. And 
the you know again they're in like ohio but for some for some reason when she goes back into the 50s she talks like this because it's greece right they just want yes. her to be like the she's, girls from greece she, it sounds like frenchie from greece so she's doing that kind of a thing but she's wearing like pedal pushers and a tight little top everybody's in their 50s garb except for Corey, who's in this like huge oversized Argyle sweater. And what I kept noticing is that they were trying to make him look like he didn't stand out too much by putting other kids, like other extras in Argyle that was the right fit like for the time. So it was just so funny because no one commented on the fact that his clothes were eight sizes too big and it just looks so out of place. And so everybody comes in, everybody's like coming in, but they're their like other version of themselves. Feeney comes in and he's just Feeney. And he isn't surprised at all by, you know, Mr. Brad Pitson, he calls him Brad Pitson, uh, being there and is just like, well, you need to get to class. Yeah, but what happens ultimately, because one of the things that Feeney back in the present day told him was tough about the 50s was McCarthyism. Tory standing out and trying to convince people that he's from the future and he has knowledge of things to come, all of his weirdness leads everybody to think that he's a spy. And they sort of chase him out of the school and he's like on the lam. He's like, I'm not a spy. I promise you i'm gonna go home to my parents house and we'll you'll you know you'll see my parents and so topanga and sean and what is topanga's funny name doesn't she have a funny name she goes by tl yeah okay that's right yeah because it's tough luck for anyone that messes with me. yeah <laughs> so anyway so he runs home his dad is Tom Bosley, who's the dad from Happy Days. And then Potsy from Happy Days walks in and it has a whole little shtick about how his name is Ansel Williams or Anson, Anson Williams, Williams or whatever. Yeah. I'm starting to realize this happens a lot in the 90s of these these celebrity walk-on cameos in the sitcoms that are just like nothing. You know, like it really is just like one notch above the guy walking out, waving to the audience, taking a bow, you know, signing a couple autographs. You know what I mean? Like it's it's purely just there, like hey, everybody, Tom Bosley. You know, like it's they not. They were part trying of the to story. get everyone they could from Happy Days because they had Tom Bosley, they had Potsy, and they have uh, Mr. Uh, Morito or, yeah. or Pat Morita. Yeah, later on, Arnold from Happy Days, Pat Morita will be at the. At the diner or whatever. Yeah, it it makes sense because they're icons of the 50s. But I'm just noticing that a lot of times these cameos, they're just not very well woven into the story is all I'm saying. And there's not much story to weave it through. Like, that's the issue with this. Now, you've made a point a couple of times just about this whole, like, 90s to 50s thing. And that is, that's sort of culturally relevant, right? Because in the 70s, when Greece came out, there was this, you know, resurgence of like, oh, we want to have some nostalgia for 50s culture, right? American graffiti and happy days. Exactly. So then in the 90s, you had the same thing. It was this weird nostalgia for like 70s, but for the 70s throwback to the 50s. 
So again, you get in the 90s, lots of Greece, you get the Greece revival on Broadway. And it's this sort of like, oh, remember the 70s when we remembered the 50s? And that was like, you know, sock cops and people were doing that kind of stuff. So that tracks in terms of what people were thinking about and feeling nostalgia for. Yeah, we were also obsessed with the 60s and the 90s. We were kind of all over the place at different times. But yeah, the the story gets more and more ridiculous. And it ends up- they Topanga and Shawnzy get him to his house and then his dad, Tom Bosley and Patsy are there and the crowd comes and finds him at his house. So then they were like, the only thing you can do is go see the wise man. So then they go back to the like cafe that's at their school, which is like in the basement of their school or something. And that's where we meet Pat Morita because he's like the wise man. And then he gets caught, like Corey gets caught, arrested and taken off to jail. And while we're in jail, then his actual parents show up and turns out they're like Boris and Natasha spies. They really are Russian. And they're like, hey, you know, did you get the microfilm or whatever to him while he's behind bars? Yeah. And there's a very ridiculous escape. Shaunzi shows up and helps him break out, but it's very silly and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I don't know. That, like, that's, that's it. He bangs his head and then he wakes up and we have like a, there's no place like home. Yeah. There's no place like the home. ending moment. scene recalls Back to the Future and Wizard of Oz because we get him waking up on the couch with everyone looking over him. So we get that sort of, and you were there and you were there, that kind yes. of thing. But then it's also like Back to the Future because it's like things have been changed or altered because of what he did in his make-believe time travel adventure. I think this is another one where it's all about the commercial that's saying this week on Boy Meets World. You know, this is like, we're going back in time. We're wearing silly outfits. You know, we've got Mr. Cunningham and Potsy from Happy Days, you know, just like it's it's a fun premise. When you get to see Topanga doing something totally different. Yeah, you know? exactly. So you think of that commercial and those shots of all the people in those costumes and everything, the celebrity guests, and it's like, yeah, that's the reason they did it. In terms of the takeaway from it, it's, you know, the lesson I think is pretty clearly – be grateful, you know, it's it is easier to be a kid in the nineties than it was in the fifties. You know, that in certain ways. Yeah. I I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but I think that's the thesis of the episode is that his parents were right, or or Mr. Feeney was right to say, you know, be grateful that you're living in a time of relative peace and stability. Right. And there's not, you know, people accusing you of being a spy or a communist. There's not the immediate threat of nuclear bombs falling on you, etc. Right. And so this really, like, even though the episode was ridiculous, and it was meant to be, right? Like, when oh, yeah. we watch these episodes, they're meant for kids. And if I was 12 and watching the show on a Friday night, I would have loved it. It was absolutely madcap. It was, you know, cute and funny and all sorts of, you know, little Easter egg nuggety things in there that you would have had a blast with and cheered when you saw, you know, the people from Happy Days, for sure. But what I think that this episode did well is to 
have that lesson be that, yes, be thankful you're living at this time, but also there's this recognition that, yeah, things are kind of hard no matter when you live. And there was a really great article in the New York Times a few weeks ago that was talking about this same thing, that every time period, every generation, every, you know, 10 years or whatever, we as human beings have this sort of bias against what is going on currently being the worst it's ever been. When really we have like our brains are set up to remember things and remember positive things and remember the positive as much as that sounds like it's not really true because what do you remember you remember being bullied you remember the horrible things people say and not the nice things but the experience of living right you remember the happiness that's what sticks with you which is why we can do things like have multiple children because you don't remember yeah, the pain it's right? forward account bias they yeah. call it and so that is there's been these studies that they've been doing over the last like 40 years to see are like is morality actually getting worse is it harder to live now than it was to live then and and what it shows is that there's no change it's just that people's perceptions continue to think that it's getting worse and getting worse and getting worse and so that to me really rings true with what we're dealing with today right like the news is always telling us it's the worst, you know, this is unprecedented and we've never done this and this is the worst time in that and this is the worst time in this. And yet, is it? I think what you're saying kind of ties into my takeaway of uh, all of these, right? Looking back on them, you know, I said at the start, Cold War is not a trope per se. I don't think we can say, oh, yeah, every sitcom, they always had to do something about the Cold War. But looking at these, Mr. Ed is a James Bond spoof. So that is what it is. That's a a cultural artifact that comes out of the early Cold War days. These other ones have to do with that transition and the way that in, in the 80s and 90s, looking back on it now, it was, you know, of course, there are always atrocities and there's always really bad stuff happening. The 80s and 90s were a time of relative peace and stability. You had Vietnam and Watergate and World War II and McCarthyism and all of that sort of in the rearview mirror. We hadn't had 9-11 and Columbine and COVID and all of that. If you consider the existential threat of the Cold War, of the nuclear rivalry between the United States and Russia as being the biggest problem of that kind that the world faces. The fact that that seemed to be coming to a close and there seemed to be clear progress being made and the attitude of the leaders was one of reconciliation, there was this sense of like, we're on a trajectory now of like, Every passing year is going to be less violent and tumultuous than the one before. And I think you see the anxiety that we're coming out of in the Golden Girls and then the sort of optimism going forward in out of the class. And I don't know, I guess the only other thing I, I thought about that was how 
maybe that sense of relative tranquility is also why we get so much cringiness in the 90s. Not in these shows per se, but in general, why there's no effort at racial inclusion, why there's so much mean humor, like, because there was this sort of false sense of security of like, well, as, as a society as a whole, we're on the right track, right? You know, the, the civil rights movement and everything was, you know, 20, 20, 30 years in the past, you know, where we're little by little, we're getting there. So now like, Hey, we can kind of let our hair down and start joking around and making fun of people's ethnicities. And we, we don't need to be so sensitive anymore because the, the real life horrors are mostly behind us. And that turned out to not really be true. And so now we have, you know, now we are more conscious of those things. But I don't know. That's that's kind of what I was thinking about. I think that there's there's something in particularly the Golden Girls and the Head of, Cla- Head of the Class episodes that, yes, at that time, it, it seemed like the Cold War was ending and it was over forever and we were never going to have to worry about that again. Well, 40 years on, we realized, nope, we're still in a lot of those same, we still have a lot of the same issues that we had then. But it doesn't mean that that there aren't pathways forward, right? And that there aren't ways to continue to be working together and trying to make the world a better place without doing the thing that we're seeing now which is the the reaction to globalization, which is to go back to nationalism and go back to isolation. So I think overall, these shows really gave us the opportunity to look at to look at our journey, right? Through, you know, Mr. Ed was like 1965. So there, you know, that's spy games in kind of not necessarily the height, but, you know, in the height of the Cold War. So, and we get to watch that progression throughout time going from spy games, Mr. Ed, this is real. Everybody is, you know, like we got spies all over. It's happening. It's before we've even gone to the moon to the last episode Corey Matthews is like, we're going to send a guy to the moon. Well, and it is a little chilling to realize that, yeah, the chapter we're currently in is the leader of Russia saying all of those policies that we've been talking about, all of those Gorbachev policies about let's all be friends, like that was the worst mistake we ever made as a country. And we need to completely reverse all of that. So yeah, you know, it all goes in cycles. Who knows? We're in over our heads here. (laughs) So much for the Cold War. What are we talking about next week? Next time, we are going camping. We're going to watch The Partridge Family Season 2, Episode 20. Hell. Then we're going to watch Small Wonder Season 1, Episode 15, The Camping Trip. Perfect Strangers Season 4, Episodes 5 and 6. Whoop, a Lazy River, Parts 1 and 2. And we're going to finish it off with Parks and Rec, Season 3, Episode 8, Camping. Yep, all camping episodes next time. And until then, we will declare this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Concluded. 
Thank you for listening to the Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Music